0: You, everybody, right? Does, if you were cognizant or even alive, think of that. If you were alive when those events took place, do you remember where you were? Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember how you felt? I mean, I can go back there in an instant. takes me nothing. And I remember that day when it was unfolding. I can still remember how I could not look away from that screen. I was looking at that TV all day long, even as horrific as those events were that were unfolding in front of me. I was mesmerized because it was so mind-boggling. To this day, even how upsetting as that was, whenever those video clips or images get shown, I can't help but find myself transfixed on it. I'm I'm there. I'm looking at it. I'm I'm still taking it in. I've been in groups of people who, you know, uh, are are of the age to remember when that happened, and I've watched them when images may come up. I've been in restaurants and I've seen images like that and I've seen how it, it's the, true for all of us. We can't seem to look away from it. It's, it's a terrible thing that happened and yet we're transfixed by it. We've got kind of the same reaction of locking in on that. I think the crucifixion of Jesus is like one of those kinds of images. It, it was horrible. It was a horrible thing to have happened. It was a horrible thing to have described and almost like in slow motion, we can't seem to look away. We take it we take it all in and we continue to take it in. For 2000 years, as terrible as, a, as a, of an event as that was, we can't help but come back to it. And when we start to talk about it, we we get in. We we're we're locked into it. You know, it's one of those things. This morning we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at Jesus' journey to the cross. And in the following weeks, we'll look at Jesus um, as he's crucified. We'll look at his death and burial. And then it culminates with the whole reason that this is good news. To begin with, we'll be looking at his resurrection as we conclude our study of Luke. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you'll go to Luke 23, please. Last week, we read about Jesus being substituted for Barabbas, the terrorist, and we saw a picture that helped explain why Jesus was going through these events that were happening, why this was part of God's plan for redemption. Jesus was the substitute for the guilty ones. Barabbas explains that to us. When we left off, Pilate gave in to the crowds calling for Jesus' crucifixion. And so he sent Jesus off to that faith, fate. The question came up to me last week, um, how it is that the crowds were were turned so suddenly and so violently against Jesus in just one week. Because, you know, as we read the gospel accounts, we know it's only a week transpires from the time that Jesus enters Jerusalem and the crowds are all singing his praises and everybody's happy and waving palm branches. A week later, they're calling for him to be crucified uh, and so how did that happen? One of the things we have to remember is that we don't have a sense of scale in this story as we're reading it. We know that Jesus came to Jerusalem with Galilean pilgrims who were all pretty much in favor of him and his ministry. He's been ministering up there. They all know what he's been up to. Uh, and so they we, the idea is that they were the ones who were praising Jesus as he came into Jerusalem which inspired praises from others who may have known about him or may have encountered him somewhere along the way. And that kind of built in this uh, sort of crescendo. But we're not talking about the entire city in that. We're talking about the group that came in that is inspiring people around them. And, and you know, that, that was part of it. The crowd before Pilate last week was made up of those uh, whom the religious leaders gathered together, people who were definitely hostile To Jesus. And we're not told how big the crowd was, but for Pilate, the threat of a riot is serious. And even a handful of people who are starting to protest could be a dangerous situation. It only takes two to start a mosh pit. I'm pretty sure Socrates said that. So uh, that's how we might understand how it is the crowds made this sudden uh, change. In our text today, we're going to be introduced to another named character, but as we said last week, this introduction isn't intended necessarily to advance the narrative, but to provide a deeper understanding of the story, to find, to find a better understanding of why this is happening. We're also going to read a section that's only found in Luke's Gospel, uh, and it's considered to be Jesus' final sermon. So with that in mind, we're going to jump into our text, starting where we left off with verse 26. Pilate has just uh, given Jesus over to the crowd's demands for crucifixions. Verse 26, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. We're going to stop there for a moment. We know from the other gospel accounts that. Pilate did have Jesus flogged. Luke leaves that part out. Uh, That was in his attempt to frustrate the demands of the religious leaders. He wanted Jesus to be set free, and he did all these things that didn't appease them. So Jesus would have been greatly diminished. We can just imagine that. We don't have to go into gory details. But we know he would have been greatly diminished by this time and by the time that it came for his execution. The way that the ancient Romans would have done this is they, they took the condemned person and they would force them to carry the patibulum, the, the cross beam. Now, I know that in the movies and in pictures, we always see an entire cross being carried by Jesus, but that's highly unlikely. The whole structure would have been way too heavy. What we believe was the normal practice was that the upright posts would have already been in place, possibly even trees, uh, cut down from their branches, uh, already in place and then they would affix the person to the crossbeam and with nails or ropes and then hoist the crossbeam and the person up onto the upright post and and do it that way. uh, uh, But, but this is, so this is what Jesus is going through. He's working his way through the crowds. He's, as I said, diminished in in his capacity to be able to carry even the weight of the patibulum. And, and so this is where we meet Simon of Cyrene. And he appears in Matthew and Mark as well, and he's named in each of the gospel accounts. So that makes him stand out as significant, just as Barabbas was, because oddly, not that many characters get named in the gospels. Uh, uh, As a a general rule, they don't get named, and when they are, they are significant to the story. So it means we need to, to stop a moment and pay attention to who this is. So for this short moment in the story, Simon of Cyrene is meant to be remembered. Cyrene was a a city in northern Africa. It's where modern day Libya is now. Uh, Simon would have traveled a long way to come to Jerusalem for this annual Passover feast. He probably would have been filled with excitement to get to the city. I don't know if you've ever gone to a baseball game, you know, get to the the field and you get to see it or you go to a NASCAR race or something like that. You get to that stadium, the excitement, the, the anticipation of being there is just awesome. You can imagine those similar kinds of feelings for Simon as he's finally there. He's entering into the city. It's possible he was so preoccupied he didn't even notice what was happening all around him until it was too late. Uh, he's going through the crowds and suddenly he feels a hand on his shoulder and there's a legionnaire who grabs him and pushes him towards uh, a condemned man and he's forced to carry his cross, told to carry the cross for this prisoner. So here in this story, this newly introduced character is now stepping in behind Jesus to carry his cross and Luke's wording is intentional in this. They put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And it doesn't take much to start getting the message that's coming through from this one little event. Back in Luke 9 23, Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. This picture of Simon carrying the cross behind Jesus is a powerful picture of the way, of the path, that we'll be taking if we want to be a follower of Jesus. Last week, Barabbas became a picture of Jesus' purpose in these events that were unfolding. Here, Simon becomes a picture for us as to our purpose in these events. And what I believe we learn here is that the sacrificial love of Jesus is meant to be reproduced in his followers. Now, somebody might say, yeah, but Rob, Simon was forced to carry a cross. Simon was forced into this. Jesus doesn't force us into anything. And and that's true. Uh, And we remember that this isn't meant to be a one-to-one picture. Like, everything isn't going to line up in this. Still, while it's true that Jesus doesn't force his way on us, the statement that he makes back in Luke chapter 9 does not leave a lot of wiggle room in it. You want to be my follower, he says. You must daily take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, you might want to give this a try, see if it works for you. Or he didn't say, you know, he didn't doesn't, he doesn't provide any alternative approach for his followers. You know, if you don't want to cross, maybe take up a cruise and get some salt air or something. No, God doesn't force us like the Roman soldier grabbing us from a crowd, but neither does he give us another option. When it comes to following him. If we want to follow him. This is the way we have to go. This path of laying down our own life. Our own ego. And taking up the discipline of loving others. Sacrificially. This is the cruciform life that Jesus calls us to. Our existence. Our identity. Gets shaped by and through the cross. Yeah, but Rob, you said that, that our identity is shaped by God's love. Yes, it is. By the cross. As Christians, you know, we have a tendency to only think about the cross as the means of atonement. It's a symbol of God's love for humanity. It's a means of receiving divine mercy and forgiveness, and it is those things. The cross is absolutely those things, the demonstration of God's unthinkable love for us. But Simon of Cyrene shakes us out of any romanticized notions about the implication of the cross for our lives. That love and mercy and forgiveness is meant to keep flowing through us. We receive it, and then it flows through us, demonstrated to this world as we follow the Jesus way. Well, so what does that mean in practical terms? That sounds all, you know, nice, but what does that mean? Well, Jesus laid down his life for people who didn't deserve it. Jesus suffered a bad reputation when he didn't deserve it. He took their insults and responded in love. Father, forgive them. He didn't spit back when they spit on him. He loved us when we were unlovable. He carried our burdens for the greater good, not just focused on his own needs. That means as we follow him, we look for ways that we can show love to those who don't love us back. And I look, okay, so I've learned I got to qualify this. That doesn't mean, you know, somebody's in an abusive relationship and they're saying, well, I got to just, you know, they're not loving me back. They're beating me and I just got to take it. Not at all. There's nothing wrong with creating good, healthy, spirit-led boundaries. That's, that's absolutely appropriate. What we're talking about here is a mindset, is a way of, of understanding things, that I will continue to love my neighbor regardless if my neighbor reciprocates. I'll continue to, to be kind and show kindness towards them, whether they acknowledge it or, or reciprocate with it or not. I will continue on this path. That's what I mean in, in this. We learn to be willing to bear someone else's burden until they can bear it themselves. We determine to forgive and not curse those who mistreat us or who we disagree with. We set out to do what Jesus did and we use his pathway, his behavior as a basis for the choices that we make in life. I mean, you know, That's that old tired phrase, but it's still an appropriate phrase. What would Jesus do? And that includes this concept of going to the cross. What would Jesus do? How did Jesus respond when he was treated like this? We're called to let go of our own selfish will and take up God's will, which is the expression of His grace and mercy and forgiveness to the world around us. Listen, we can try to hang on to our self-will, our ego-driven goals, but that's a closed system. We're only going to get smaller in life by pursuing that. To see our lives as conduits for God's sacrificial love, that is where we discover our true humanity. And as counterintuitive as it seems That's where we find a truly satisfied life. Jesus said, if you're going to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. And he didn't mean that in literal terms, though it can include that, I suppose, when you think of the martyrs throughout history. But what he's talking about there is that our constant feverish attempts at making sure that our self-will and our purposes get achieved as opposed to yielding to God. And following his course of being willing to love and forgive and show mercy, that's where real satisfaction can be found. Well, I don't know, Rob. Well, have you tried it? (laughs) It's just stuff to chew on. We'll just keep reading here. Verse 27. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women, Uh, So this section we're going to read here is unique to Luke. And, of course, we have to wonder, now, who are these grief-stricken women? Jesus is going to go on to call them the daughters of Jerusalem, but that hardly identifies them for us. Some have suggested that they're Jesus' followers who are following along, agonizing over his fate. But he's going to say some things to them, and what he says to them doesn't really seem like something that he'd say to people who've been with him all this time. Some believe that they're just people who are on the street who are expressing their outrage and anguish over the way that the Roman Empire is treating Jewish citizens. And, and that's a possibility. It could be that. One view is that these are professional mourners, something that was common in ancient Eastern societies. They were women. We've encountered them before when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. They were women who would come to funerals or, like in this instance, follow behind a condemned person to their fate, and they would weep and wail on their behalf so that, that, you know, that the person didn't go out in silence, that there was mourning over that, and they'd do that on behalf of the family, and then the family would pay them a few coins uh, for their services in that afterwards. It sounds completely absurd uh, to our ears, but it is a thing. It was a thing that, that was part of their society, and I think it's very plausible that they were putting on a good cry in hopes of being paid by Mary or Jesus' disciples as he was headed out to meet his fate. you have to think through which sounds like the best option to you. But moving on, it says, verse 28, "...but Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they'll say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless." the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? All right, so whoever these women were, it is most likely they weren't expecting this response from Jesus. In fact, I don't think anybody there was expecting this. Even in the midst of his agony... Jesus has his wits about him enough to give this warning. And most scholars are in agreement that this is a warning to Israel, to the nation of Israel. That's why he even identifies them, daughters of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying to the women, in essence, you're weeping at the wrong time. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your families. And he's saying this because of what's on the horizon for them. Rome lays siege to Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, and, and this is 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, and decimate the city, tear it apart, burn it to the ground, destroy the temple, and, and so Jesus gives this reverse beatitude here: "Blessed are those without children in those days," which was what the, it was the opposite of what women would consider a state of blessing in that time and culture, and because he was indicating the hard times that were about to come. To them. And he quotes Hosea 10, which described the day of destruction for the northern kingdom of Israel when the Assyrian Empire came and destroyed them and scattered them to the winds. You talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel. That's when that happened, back in 700 something BC. They came in and destroyed uh, the northern kingdom. So, uh, Jesus is equating what's coming to Jerusalem with the destruction of the northern kingdom at that time, the complete decimation of that people. And then he gives this cryptic statement that this, you know, if this tragedy can happen when the tree is green, what's going to happen when the, the you know, the, it's dry wood? And we know, not understand. You've been around, you know, you cut down a tree, you can't burn that wood immediately. It's too green. It won't go. Uh, You know, you've got old wood that's dried out. It's it's a hard statement to decipher completely. Some believe he's saying that if if this is what Rome does with an innocent, harmless man, imagine what they're going to do when Jerusalem, led by zealots and rebels, has stoked up Rome's anger uh, over time and doomed that city to destruction. And I think that's a plausible understanding of what he's saying. If they're going to do this to Jesus who did no harm within the city, what's Rome going to do to a bunch of guys who are armed and fighting and and causing all kinds of trouble? He's not being vindictive. I don't believe that at all. He's giving one final warning about the path that Israel was on. They thought they had to establish God's kingdom by force like all the other kingdoms of the world do. You go out and you fight and you assert your dominance. And Jesus is giving them one last glimpse of where it is that's heading, where that's taking them. It's a contrast of paths. But what really strikes me about this section is that Jesus, bloodied and beaten and and heading towards a shameful execution, tells these women not to weep for him. On the surface, he's the one to be pitied. He's the one to be wept over. But he indicates that's not the case. Why? Why do you think? Anybody? He knows, what's coming. he knows what's coming. He does. It's it's Friday when this is happening, but Sunday's on the horizon. An empty tomb is on the horizon. Jesus is telling them, "Don't weep for me, because he knows where this path is leading him to his death for sure." but something even better beyond that. And I believe that we remember here, just those simple words, don't weep for me, remind us that following Christ's way is going to lead to redemption. However awful Jesus' death may be, Luke reminds us, it's not just one more tragedy, one more death of an innocent in a mean and broken world. No, his unjust death gathers up All of the deaths and injustices that we suffer and lends them the dignity and honor of knowing that the Son of God also suffered these things. We're not alone in our grief or in our pain or in our confusion. The Son of God understands because he's experienced it firsthand. But more than that, God doesn't just understand silently commiserating with our suffering along the way, God also promises to redeem. In and through Jesus' death, God confronts and ultimately defeats death, the final enemy. In and through the injustice that Jesus experiences, God brings justice to this earth, not through strength of force, but through this strange power of vulnerability. Jesus, bloodied and beaten, (laughs) put his own pain and moment here into the framework of God's plans and purposes. And we have to do the same with the troubles and the pains that we face today. And that's not to say that God intends for us to suffer or plans that for us. This is part of a broken world. That stuff is going to come in a broken world. But... God can take anything and turn it into something good. That's what the cross is reminding us of. That's what the resurrection declares to us loudly and clearly. Nothing is beyond God's ability to redeem. We have to take our painful todays and set them in place in the framework of God's ability to work through everything that happens and bring about something good. Jesus' path was filled with pain and heartache, but it led to the defeat of death, to the ultimate redemption for all of us who will believe it. Following Jesus' path may lead through difficult times, times when we have to put our own will and our own egos to death, times when we don't understand and can't see any light at the end of the tunnel, just darkness. In those times, we have to hear, we've got to, by an act of our will, we've got to hear Jesus say, don't weep for me. And we need by faith to say it too. Don't weep for me. I follow the God who redeems. I've taken up the cross of the one who will turn that cross into something glorious. Something that rings down through the ages to remind us that there is hope to be found in God. So that Paul can say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? following Christ, following the path of the cross, the path of sacrificial love, it is the path to redemption. It is the path that leads to the good ending that God has in store. Let's not lose sight of that. As much as our troubles and our difficulties command our attention as an act of our will, let's determine, I'm going to follow Jesus I'm going to hear what he says. Don't weep for me. Why? Oh, because redemption's right on the horizon. In all the troubles we face, and I know that we do, let's look to the Son of God. Let's find our confidence in his power, in his willingness to redeem the broken things of our lives. Right on? All right, very cool. So, this morning I'm sure you've seen that we've got the elements of communion Uh, here. It's the, the last Sunday of the month, and this is the time that we like to set apart for communion. So, we're going to celebrate that together this morning. I think it's a highly fitting ceremony that looks back on the events that we're reading about here in Luke, all that Jesus accomplished for us. So, back on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he had gathered with his disciples for the Passover meal. and Jesus as we've talked about many times before repurposed elements of that passover meal to provide us with a new covenant meal something that that again reminds us of who we are and who we belong to and how that's been accomplished so he took the uh he took the 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 Effie Komen bread Part of the Passover ceremony, something that would have been broken early in the ceremony and hidden away, found later on and redeemed for a piece of silver. He took that piece of bread, passed it around. Everybody was expecting that. And then as they start to eat it, he says, now eat this. This is my body, which was given. Oh, are you doing this for me? Thank you so much, Shirley. You're so sweet. So uh, he said... uh, this is my body, which is given for you. Now, I'm sure the disciples are all sitting there going, Oh, please, let's don't do this again. Because back in John chapter 6, he lost pretty much all of his followers because he was saying, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you'll have no part of me. And everybody's like, yeah, Okay, bye. And, and, and so the disciples are like, Okay, we're, we're back to this. But what Jesus was trying to communicate to them was that by him, doing what we're reading about here, taking up that cross, taking our place as the guilty ones, and, 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 and taking that cross to the place of execution where the injustices and unfairness and cruelty of this world got poured onto him. The consequence for our sin was, was put on his body. And that's what this is a reminder of. His, his body that provide redemption for us, for our bodies. And then at the end of the ceremony, he took the cup of redemption and as they were drinking it, he says, Oh, oh, and this is my blood. A new covenant is made in my blood, which is poured out for you and so a covenant of, of course is a is a committed relationship uh, a, a a ratified relationship by some means and 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 this is what it is he 's talking about it we 've got a brand new relationship with God, not dependent on our ability to keep a law or religious rules or anything like that, but based solely on the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe on him. Would not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And that's what this is all representing what it is that God has determined to do for us, to save us, to rescue us from the consequence of sin, chief among that, the consequence of death, eternal separation from God. We are now united with God, reconciled back to him, and life has brand new meaning and purpose. So the way we do this here, we're going to just take a few minutes. Um, uh, we're going to pray over these elements. We've got the table at the front and the table at the back. And we've got. Uh, if you've got food allergies, there's a basket up here uh, with bread in it that would be more suitable for you. But if you'll grab your, the elements and take them back to your seat uh, uh, and pray over them and, and take them, uh, you can take them together in a group if you want to, or if you're by yourself, take them together. Let's look around. Let's acknowledge and recognize one another. This is the family of God. Let's at least be sure that we're seeing it. Everybody's wearing a name tag. A lot of people are wearing name tags. This is your opportunity to go talk to somebody and act like you've known them forever uh, because you can see their name. But but this is a good time to be sure that we we recognize, at least see one another, acknowledge this is our family. This is the family of God that he's called us into. Um, and and let that same love that was shown to us flow through us to each other. So, Father, we count this bread as representation of Jesus' death on the cross for us, the consequence of sin laid on him, and we thank you for it. We now are released, released like Barabbas was released. We are now cleansed as all of those who were cleansed under Jesus' ministry. Because of what you've done for us, we count this cup as representative of your blood. Poured out for us a new covenant, a new means by which we are now reconciled to God. It's is dependent on your love for us which will never end, not our ability to do this right. But lead us into a right life as we take this, Father. And we pray these things, Lord in Jesus' name.
1: All right, we're gonna we're gonna end with one more song. Give me life Grace flowing from His side For greater sacrifice What He's done What He's done All the glory glory and the honor to the Son. My sins are forgiven. My future is heaven. The glory and the honor to the Son. My sins are forgiven. My future is.
0: Amen, amen. And we do thank you, Lord, for what it has done for us. We pray, Father, that we carry this in our lives and how it is that we interact with our fellow human being, that we demonstrate the reality of this salvation you've provided for us in unmistakable ways to show the world around us how good you are, how kind you are, how loving you are, I pray that we become conduits of that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's pray this prayer together and we'll consider that our closing. Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven. Provide for our daily needs. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace, you children of God.